all of us have questions. We have questions each and every day, and we're all searching for answers. We have questions about what it means to be Christian, what the Bible is all about, and how to make sense of it in the way we live our lives. In November, I compiled a list of questions from all of you, questions that were burning on your heart. And from those questions, I created this sermon series through the month of January, in which I strive and am striving to answer those questions as faithfully as I can. And today, we continue the series with this question, how do we share the good news? So would you please pray with me? May the words in my mouth... And the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. When did you last talk to somebody about your faith? When did you last talk to somebody about your faith? That question was one that John Wesley, the founder of the United Methodist, well, the Methodist movement, he implored that every person who identified themselves as part of the movement, they had to answer that question once a week. When was the last time you shared your faith with someone? And if we're honest with ourselves, that's like one of those uncomfortable questions we could ever think about. Because we don't want to be labeled as an evangelist. We don't want to be misconstrued as those kind of people who carry around our Bibles and try to scare people into coming to church on Sunday. We don't want to leave church with tracts in our hands so that we have to knock on our neighbor's doors and tell them that if they don't accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, then they shall burn in hell for all eternity. We, good Methodists, don't want to be those kind of people. But the question, when was the last time you shared your faith with someone? It might be the most important question we ever ask ourselves. When I was in college, I went to James Madison University in Harrisburg, Virginia. I lived in a house with four other young men. And very quickly, I became the de facto chef for the whole house. Because my good-natured four roommates decided that the most healthy and nutritional way to make it through four years of college was to eat McDonald's, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So I decided that once a week, while we lived together, I would cook a nice meal. For us. Something with vegetables and the meat, and perhaps a starch, but that we would all sit at one table together. We would find a time in our busy schedules to sit down once a week at a table that was cockeyed, with chairs that didn't match, with plates that didn't match, with plastic silverware, because we didn't have real silverware. And every week, that was the deal. I will make dinner for all of us if we eat it together. So the first night came where we were having this meal. I worked on it all afternoon. And we sat down at the table. I put the plates down and I said, let's pray. And they all stared at me with blank faces. Because in that moment, I realized none of them had ever prayed before. And so I just did what any one of us would have done. I closed my eyes and I started praying. And I prayed and I prayed and I said, amen. And every week, I made them dinner. And every week, I prayed for them. And the longer we did this, the longer we had this habit, the more they adapted to it, such that at some point, they actually started to hold each other's hands while we prayed together. Such that at some point, they started to close their eyes and bow their heads as they held hands with one another. Such that one night, when I inexplicably forgot to pray, and I started to cut into my chicken breast, 
My roommate, Matt, leaned over and he said, Um, excuse me, aren't you forgetting something, Taylor? <laughs> a couple months later, I was invited to preach at a local church in Harrisonburg, Asbury United Methodist Church. And because I love my roommates so much, I invited them to come, not knowing if they would or what they would think, but they came, all four of them. They came to church and they did what most people do. They sat in the farthest back pew as they possibly could. Uh, but I stood at the front kind of like I do here, and I, I preached. I don't remember what I preached about, but I preached. And when I was done, the pastor went behind the altar and prayed for God's spirit to make the bread and the cup into the body and the blood of Jesus. And then she invited everyone to come forward to receive. And I stood with her, and I started handing pieces of the, the bread to people. And I saw my four roommates stand up and make their way to the center aisle and follow everyone else, because they didn't know what else to do. And the closer they got to the altar, the more frightened they looked. And it was when they were standing right in front of me, with hands in their pockets, I realized that just as they had never prayed ever, that none of them had ever received communion. And so they looked at me with eyes that were saying, what in the world are we doing here? And I said, put your hands like this on you a piece of bread, you dip it in the cup, you eat it, you pray, you go home, we'll talk about it later, okay? <laughs> we do things like that in church so often that we don't think about how weird it is that we take little pieces of bread and we dip it in Welsh's grape juice and we eat it and we go pray. But for 20-year-olds who have never been to church before, it was about the weirdest thing they could possibly imagine. But bless their hearts, all four of them came forward with their hands outstretched. They received the body of Jesus. They dipped it into his blood and they partook in the heavenly meal. There was a time in the life of the church where we could expect new people to show up every Sunday no matter what. When Christianity was Christendom, which is to say when Christianity was normative, the majority of people in a community could be found in a place like this on Sunday morning. This meant that for generations, great scores of people were born into the church. They were raised through a church such that you never had to explain something like communion. You never had to explain something like <coughs> prayer. And the work of evangelism, it was nothing more than waiting for people to show up on Sunday morning. But friends, that time is long gone. And because churches can no longer expect that if you build it, they will come. The work of evangelism has increased sharply. Congregations like you are told that you are in the business of saving souls. That you must do everything in your power to share the good news. But more often than not, the way we do it, it makes the good news sound like bad news. You know, with fear-mongering tactics with threats of hell and eternal damnation. They're hung over people's heads with hopes that it will scare them into coming to church. The Bible is used as a weapon to attack people for the way they're living their lives in order to scare them and shame them into coming to church. And people are treated as numbers and objects to be placed on a worksheet. Empty promises about heavenly rewards are used to get butts in the pews. And people wonder why the church is shrinking. When I asked for questions in November, I received a lot about how do we share the good news. 
And I think behind those questions was uh, the question, how can we grow the church? How can we get more people here on Sunday morning? And growth, to be frank, is a good thing. Jesus' final words to his disciples are, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. But growth, for the sake of growth, is problematic. I shared with our Sunday school class last week that years ago I was driving and I saw a billboard for a church. And on the billboard it said, free or, uh, iPad raffle giveaway this Sunday in church. And I thought, surely that's not what the sign said. Surely. There's not an iPad raffle in this church. So I looked up their website. And sure enough, every single Sunday... Every Sunday. Leo Bonner, if you brought three people to church on Sunday, you would get to take three raffle tickets. And in the middle of the service, they would say, 9374. Anybody? 9374. And Leo Bonner, if you had 9370, you got an iPad. And they did it every single Sunday. Friends, if we wanted to fill this church to the brim on Sunday mornings, we could. I have the best idea of how to do it. It's called a reverse offering plate. Instead of collecting money from all of you, I fill the offering plates up with money and I pass it out. <laughs> there will be more people here next Sunday than we have pews to fill if we have a reverse offering plate. But that's not faithful. That's not evangelism. The point I'm trying to make is this. We cannot magically wait for people to show up on Sunday morning. Those days are long gone. So in addition to the questions we received about how to share the good news, we also received an equal number of, why in the world does Pastor Taylor do something called a podcast? A podcast. They said during the children's message, a podcast is a recording that you can listen to on your phone or uh, on your computer. It's the modern radio. And for the last year and a half, I've been working with two other United Methodist pastors from the Northern Virginia area to produce weekly podcasts. One of the podcasts is just to have conversations about theological subjects where we interview authors on something they've worked on. Uh, one of them is about the lectionary, where we make an episode every Monday to help preachers prepare for Sunday with ideas and illustrations. And one of them, we define theological words that don't make sense to people anymore. And we started it as a way to just have conversations about theology and, and scripture and the church. And we made the episodes public in the very beginning. And it became very popular. And by very popular, I mean really popular. By the end of January, we will hit our 200,000th download. 200,000th download. We are able to look at our statistics, and from the number of people who download an episode every week, if we were a church, we'd be the largest United Methodist church in the country. Think about that for a second. If the number of people who listen to our podcast every week came to one church, it would be the largest United Methodist Church in America. And we didn't start this to become popular. We didn't do it so people would hear what we have to say. We wanted to reach people who no longer felt comfortable in church. We wanted to provide content with zero commitment to people who could listen and learn more about faith without the fear of what uh, church often carries with it. Because for as much as worship is wonderful and perfect and delightful, for some people, 
It's terrible. In December, we had a live podcast event. Uh, we did it in um, Alexandria. We invited a couple guests to come. and uh, We had about 150 people in attendance. And I set up all the equipment, and we did an interview. And about halfway through, we had a break. Uh, it, was a nice, it was nice to have a break. But of course, as soon as the break started, an older gentleman walked up to me. And he said, you know, you sound a little different in person than you do on the podcast. <laughs> and not sure whether or not he meant it as a compliment. I asked him to sort of unpack that a little bit. And he said, well, on the podcast, you sound a lot more confident. Tonight, you sounded real. So I appreciate your vulnerability, and I appreciate your podcast. And I asked him to share a little bit more about himself, and he told me that he hadn't been to church in 20 years. He said, too many sermons telling me that I was bad, too many pastors abusing their privileges, too many people in the community not getting help from the church right next door. He said, it was just enough, and I haven't been back. And he told me he didn't even miss it. Until somebody told him to listen to the podcast. And he said he downloaded one episode, and he listened to it, and it was refreshing, because it wasn't the kind of faith he heard in his Sunday school class. It wasn't the faith he heard from the pulpit in his church 20 years ago. It was something different, and it didn't make him feel guilty. And then he said... That for the first time in 20 years, after listening to the podcast, he realized he needed to give the church another chance. And so he did. We live in an ever-changing world where information is available so quickly that it appears like the church is irrelevant or archaic. And I can't blame people sometimes. We don't think about what it's like to walk into a church having never been to one before and you see people taking bread and putting it in a cup. It's hard to imagine what it must look like to people who have never seen anyone pray when they walk in and everyone's got their eyes closed and they're staring at the carpet. The world has changed dramatically and the church, frankly, hasn't kept up. And so I try to do things differently. I try to do podcasts. We try to do different events of the church to finally find a place where the world intersects with the church, so that not, we're not the church of the past, but that we're embracing whatever it means to be the church of the future. We have the most important thing to offer anyone, and that's the good news of Jesus Christ. And so like Scripture, like Deirdre read for us, we can do, like Paul, we can do everything we can, by every means we can, to share that good story. For Paul, that meant being a Jew to the Jews, outside the law to those outside the law, and all things to all people. For today, for us, that might take on a different meaning. We might be tasked with dropping our political identities so we can reach people across the divide. It might mean that we have to crucify our prejudices so that we can reach the people who don't look like us, or we might have to repent our judgmental attitudes in order to talk to people who frighten us. As Christians, we are evangelical. Evangelism, by definition, is sharing the good news. Because so much of who we are and what we do is wrapped up in the story of this Jew named Jesus who died and rose again. In recognizing how much that story has changed our lives and how much that story can change the lives of others. But of course, today evangelism comes off like a bad word. Because when we hear evangelism, we think of people knocking on our doors, frightening us with threats. 
We think about those terrible tracks that we receive when we're walking around in public. That's what we conjure up in our minds when we hear the word evangelism. We do a lot of strange things in the United Methodist Church. We're not unique in that. We do strange things like a lot of churches. But one of the strangest things we do is we take pastors from one church and we send them to another. In almost every other denomination, people like you get to choose your pastor. You interview candidates. You listen to sermons. You say, that's not very good. We don't like him or her. Oh, that looks nice. Let's bring her back for another try. But the Methodists? No, 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 no. You all have no choice in the matter. <laughs> you all are stuck with me. <laughs> and so it happens in a strange way that you receive a phone call and it usually goes something like this. Taylor, what I'm about to tell you, you may not repeat to anyone else. So, of course, I'm already thinking about who are the first five people I'm going to tell you. <laughs> and he said, the bishop has discerned that your gifts and graces fit best with Cokesbury United Methodist Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Have you ever heard of it? I said, no, I haven't heard of Cokesbury United Methodist Church, but it sounds pretty nice. So the DS said, well, we're sending you there. You're going to a new church. And so, keeping it a secret, we scheduled a meeting with the Staff Parish Relations Committee of Cokesbury United Methodist Church, a group of people here who are responsible for the maintenance and the care of the employees, and we had to meet in secret. And as all secret meetings happen at church, it happens on a Sunday afternoon when no one is here. And I drove up in our parking lot with my wife and my son last year, looking at this building, thinking, oh, I'm going to be here for a long time. And I walked across the parking lot up to our office entrance, and I walked in, and they opened the door, and there was the Staff Parish Relations Committee, the first people I met from the church. And they welcomed me, they greeted me, they ushered me down the hall to our conference room, where we had cheese and fruit. It was pretty nice. <laughs> we sat down at the table, and the first thing we did was go around and share our name and one important fact about us. Some of you were there. So one by one, names were introduced, facts about individuals, and the very last person to go was Emmett Wright. <laughs> Emmett waved to good people at church. Everyone say, hi, Emmett. Hi. He says hi to all of you, so you have to say hi back to him sometimes. <laughs> Emmett Wright was the last person to go, and this is what he said. Hi, I'm Emmett Wright, and I am an evangelist. And I thought, oh, great. <laughs> That's just what I need. An evangelist. And so I said, please, sir, explain to me what you mean. And in true Emmett Wright fashion, all he said was something like, oh, you just wait and see. <laughs> On any given week, Emmett Wright will invite a score of people to discover God's love at our church. But he does it not by attacking strangers with threats or empty promises. He meets people where they are and he gets to know them. He sees his evangelism first as a call to friendship. Friendship with all people long before ever inviting them to church. And because Emmett does that kind of evangelical work, because he puts friendship first before church, when he does invite people, they always come. They always come. Because I think Emmett Wright might be the happiest person I've ever met in my life. 
don't you all want a pill that Emmett takes every day? Yeah, it's called Jesus. Emmett is just like Paul in that he becomes all things to all people. He never presents the gospel in a stuffy or forgotten way. It's always alive and friendly and exciting. Emmett meets people where they are instead of sitting around waiting for them to show up. Because Emmett is like Paul. Paul, whose ministry was about evangelism. Over and over and over, he won people for the sake of the gospel. Not to fill pews, not to frighten them, not to shame them, but because he believed the story of Jesus Christ was the most important thing they would ever hear. Paul believed that the message of salvation would change everything about the way people lived. He believed that following Jesus makes all the difference. Paul became all things to all people because that's exactly what God was willing to do for us. God became all things to all people in his son, Jesus the Christ. He became all things to all people in that manger as a baby taking on flesh on the cross in the empty tomb. God made himself a slave to all through Jesus in order to save all from slavery to sin and death. Evangelism always begins in friendship, in that intimate space that two people share going through life. Evangelism always takes place when listening becomes more important than speaking. Evangelism comes to fruition when saving and winning others for the gospel is more about them than about us. We can be evangelists. We can be like Emmett. We can be like Paul. And frankly, we can be like Jesus when we become all things to all people. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever.